So today we continue to look at the book of Haggai and the challenge that the prophet gave to the people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Building projects always take longer and cost more than people expect. It's very rare when a project comes in on time or on budget. Watch any episode of Grand Designs or indeed just simply watch the reaction to locals here in Edinburgh when you say two words, Edinburgh trams. Uh, I think you might be able to see a picture of the road outside our church building which was like that for at least two years. Project 21, our own church refurbishment project here, took nine years from start to finish and demanded far more than we would ever have imagined in terms of money and energy and prayer. The church family here gave over seven million pounds which was amazing and enables us to do things now that we'd never thought of when we started. In a few weeks' time, the new St. James Quarter will begin to open just across the road that way from where I'm speaking to you today, just across the road from the church building. They spent two and a half years demolishing and digging down and excavating the old shopping centre, and another two and a half years building back up with stunning new shops, restaurants and hotels, apartments and walkways, the latest promotional video even describes it as a cathedral in a World Heritage Site. Given that Edinburgh already has three cathedrals, it's an interesting question to ask, what is it a cathedral to? Well, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that we've been looking at over the past few weeks was also taking longer than expected. Returning back from exile, the people had been reluctant builders or at least they had built, but it had be they'd built their own houses, not the temple. Even when Haggai and Zechariah had challenged them and told them what God wanted, work had been slow. It's now four months since Haggai chapter 1, and two months since the passage we looked at last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. The date is very precise. It's the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. That's December the 18th, 520 BC, to you and me. But it's also a significant day, a day when a particular stone is being laid and, as it were, a marker is being put down. Perhaps it's a solemn assembly. The people and the priests have gathered together for what was known as a, a Kalu ceremony, K-A-L-U, where in the ancient world, a brick from the old temple was ceremonially laid in the new structure by a representative of the king and the priests would purify the site. At my last church, I took part in one of those consecration ceremonies. A bishop came, we all dressed up in our robes, and I knew what it was to stand there, dressed in my clergy robes, holding a trowel, some cement, an order of service, and wearing a bright yellow hard hat. That's the context of chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, that Naomi read for us a few moments ago. And Haggai uses the moment to remind the people what is going on and what's about to unfold. And he asks them two questions in verses 11 and 12 and verses 13 and 14. Two questions to which everybody would know the answers, the priests, the people and Haggai. The answers are obvious and the answers are well known. Firstly, no, and then yes. The first question is this. Can holiness be contagious? And the situation that Haggai describes is a priest 
carrying consecrated meat. And as he's carrying the meat in the folds of his robe, his robe touches something else. It might be bread or stew, wine, olive oil or other food. Haggai actually literally describes what are everyday things. And he asks the question, is what is touched by the robe made holy because of the consecrated meat inside? Everybody would have answered as one person, no. And the second question comes, well, if a person who has been defiled by touching a corpse touches bread or stew, wine, olive oil or other food, the ordinary things of life, well, is what is touched also defiled? Well, the answer was obvious to everybody because the Hebrew worldview is to see everything through clean and unclean categories. The answer was yes, it would be defiled. So Haggai uses this moment to remind the people and remind the priests, although there's no criticism implied at all of them, what is actually happening here. He reminds them that there are consequences and have been consequences to their actions. They've been distracted, apathetic, focused on their own houses rather than God's. And there have been consequences, verse 14. The same is true of this people and this nation. When something is touched by something defiled, it defiles that thing which it touches. And Haggai is saying to the people, even then, there is no sacred secular divide. What we believe, he says, should affect how we live. There needs to be an integrity between what we say, pray and sing and how we live. And how we live, Haggai says, also affects how we pray, sing and speak. It's one of the reasons why here at Peace and G's we go on endlessly about this thing, whole life discipleship. That there is no part of our lives that doesn't matter to God. Actually, when you think about it, there's no other type of discipleship apart from whole life discipleship. So the two questions that Haggai asks, and then verses 15 to 19, he repeats again this phrase, think on. He repeats the phrase that he used in chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 1 verse 7, give careful thought. He repeats it in verse 15. It's one of his characteristic expressions, better translated by that Hebrew idiom, put your heart on your roads. It's the equivalent, as we've been looking at over the last few weeks, of think on, this expression which is very common in the north of England. And Haggai reminds me again as a, as a common sense, plain speaking northerner. In four short months from late August to mid-December when he's giving this message, his message is very simple. He's basically saying, wake up and smell the coffee. Look around you. See what's going on. Think how you're living. Think how you're acting. See what is really going on. And he's encouraging them to reflect deeply on who they are and who God wants them to be. Just as we've been reflecting during these two months of April and May, who we are as P's and G's and what God wants us to be. Haggai tells them to look back over the last 16 years of the harvests since they've returned from exile, where the grain harvest had only been 50% of the one that they expected, and the wine harvest had only been 40%. He refers to that in verse 16. It's an incredibly low crop yield 
that would have had incredible effects, harmful effects upon the people and the economy. He says there have been blight, mildew and hail, which, if we're honest, does sound like last week's weather forecast here in Edinburgh. But he's summing up what's affected the harvests over the last 16 years. And now he turns back to the building site where they are. Up till now, the grounds have been cleared. The timber has been brought down from the mountains. The stones have been prepared. The site has been cleared. Just as in the St. James Quarter, they took that two and a half years to dig down and excavate and to clear the site. This is the moment when they're about to start to build up. But now Haggai says, just before this happens, just before this laying down of this particular stone that was probably from the old temple, again in verse 18, and he repeats it twice, verse 15 and twice in verse 18. He really wants them to give careful thought, to think on. Remember this day, he says, in our terms, December the 18th, 520 BC. From now on, he's saying, things are going to be different. As you lay this stone from the old temple, as you, as it were, start to, almost the equivalent of building a cairn, have you put down a stone as a marker of this day? This day signifies that from now on, things are going to be different. Things are going to be different because you put God first. Things are going to be different because you want to meet with God. Things are going to be different because you want to honour God. And as you seek God, you'll see the fruits, literally. The next harvest will be different. The basic things of the economy, the grain, the grapes, the figs, the pomegranate, that were standard parts of, of the diet in Palestine at the time. Pomegranate was used for dye, for cloth, and olive oil was used for fuel, for light and heat. All the harvests going forward from this day, Haggai says, will be fruitful. They'll be different to the ones over the last 16 years. Why? Because of this one promise, verse 19. God says, I will bless you. So there are three applications mainly for us. Firstly, doing holy things doesn't make us holy. That was the mistake that people were making, thinking that if they touched the consecrated meat, somehow they would be made holy. I've been ordained now as a clergy person for 30 years next year. I've worked for churches and Christian organisations for nearly 40 years. Now, the great danger in the work that I do is that I equate the work that I do for God for my relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with preaching and praying. There's nothing wrong with planning or leading a church. There's nothing wrong with doing weddings, baptisms or funerals. You might do them wrongly, but there's nothing wrong inherently in what they are. But it does not mean that I am any more like Jesus because I do them. That's the mistake that people often make when they think about clergy. They think that somehow they're, they're holier, they're more spiritual. They're probably not. Actually, what's going on is quite the reverse. God knows what I would be like if I wasn't being paid to pray and read the Bible and go to church, etc. That's why he's called me into ordained ministry, 
because I have to do it as part of my job. But doing these things, none of which are bad in themselves, does not make me any more holy or spiritual or more like Jesus simply because I do them. Now, it's easy to think that because we watch church online or attend a connect group or serve at our Saturday meal or play in the band, none of which are bad and all of which are good, and service is one of the spiritual disciplines, but it's very easy to begin to think that somehow these things make us more spiritual. The more we come to church, we're more spiritual. The more we pray, we're more spiritual. The more we know of our Bible, the more spiritual we are. We should never equate our relationship with God with things like spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, which are designed to help us grow in our relationship with God, but we can never take the place of our relationship with God. They aren't bad things in themselves. We need people to serve, and in fact, as restrictions ease, we'll need more and more people to serve as we begin to do more things here at Peace and G's through the building. But God doesn't love us more because we go to church, God doesn't love us more because we read our Bible, serve on a team. God doesn't love us more because we preach on an online service. God loves us because God loves us. So doing holy things doesn't make us more holy. Secondly, the whole of our lives matter to God. Haggai told the people there was a link between their action or lack of action towards God and their lives, their everyday lives, their food, their fuel, their clothes, their equivalent, if you like, of the St. James Quarter. It matters to God and our faith should be seen there in the St. James Quarter or in everyday life as much as it is in church. Os Guinness is a Christian sociologist and he once observed this. The problem is not that Christians aren't where they should be. The problem is that they're not what they should be, where they are. I heard a lovely story this week. The grandma of a P's and G's member died a couple of weeks ago. She'd been in a care home elsewhere in Scotland and the church member's father had gone to be with his mum. She was elderly, but it was still very sad and the family is still grieving the loss. But as the dad of the Peace and G's church member sat holding his mum's hand just after she died, a member of staff came in who normally works the night shift and hadn't seen the father before or indeed uh, been around any of the family. The father explained that grandma had died. The member of staff of the care home offered to say a prayer and Julie did. The prayer apparently was a beautiful and really helpful prayer. The dad was really grateful and asked if they'd always been a Christian. Oh no, they replied. I became a Christian on an Alpha course at a church called P's and G's in Edinburgh online. What the person didn't know was that the church member is a member of our Alpha team. Here was somebody new to faith, sharing their faith in an appropriate way in the workplace. Now, you might not be asked to pray with someone this week, But how will your work colleagues know that you're a Christian tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday? So the whole of our life matters to God. Thirdly and finally, blessing matters. 
Today's passage ends with an amazing and significant promise. Very simple, verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. As the people begin to rebuild the temple, God promises his blessing. Remember, rebuilding the temple meant that they believed God's promises from the past. Rebuilding the temple meant that they wanted to encounter God in the present. And rebuilding the temple meant that they believed in the future that God had promised them. As we continue to move out of lockdown and the restrictions, as we begin to rebuild church and our regular rhythms of work and rest, as we acknowledge the grief and the pain and the weariness and the frustration that many people feel just now and the uncertainty still of what lies ahead, we have a promise, we have a hope, we have a future, not because of who we are, not because of the holy things that we do, but simply because of who God is. I will bless you. We have a future. We have a hope. Because of who God is, because of what Jesus has done, and the promise of blessing that that brings for each and every one of us.